This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, Ottawa has advised Canadians not to travel internationally for non-essential trips because of the threat of Omicron. So how will this affect those who've already booked their flights for the holiday season? What happens to the insurance of people who decide to go ahead with their trips? And what happens to somebody who's taken a trip and who tests positive before coming home and then uh, has to stay put? Uh, those are all the kinds of questions people are grappling with now. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free one 866 740 740 And now let us go to the expert on all of this, Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure. Hi, Marty. How are you? Thank you for that kind intro. Uh, well, uh, has your phone been going off the hook? Emails and phones since 4 a.m. in the morning yesterday with the news of a travel advisory. It is beyond comprehension what this decision has done and how it's put us all in the most precarious position. Okay, well, uh, my first at least comment on this, um, I know that everybody, you know, has pent up demand looking forward to traveling over the holidays. But, you know, I would have thought that somewhere not too far in the back of people's heads, they would have had a sense that, you know, maybe you might have to go to plan B. Am I wrong? Well, I think we've had subtle hints the last couple of weeks. And listen, the minute the variant came, I knew I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop that something would happen. And it in fact did happen. So you are right. But the difference, and I can't stress this enough, what we are going through now with a level three travel advisory versus March of 2020 is night and day. There is a vaccine. Hospitals are not filled to capacity. We don't enter ICUs and be put on ventilators. You can't compare the two times, yet our government is not necessarily differentiating this at this point. Well, wait a minute. Isn't there a difference between the advisory we had now and the advisory we had in March? Absolutely not. Level three travel advisory to avoid all non-essential travel. Zero difference. Insurance-wise, though, you had to buy a rider in order to have COVID included because it was excluded once there was a travel advisory. Now, the good news from most carriers, not all, but most is that regardless of the travel advisory issued yesterday, coverage will still include COVID and, and as well as any other unexpected medical emergency. Okay, so uh, and what does that rider say? It covers what, your hospitalization or you have to see a doctor or whatever it is? Yeah, any cost, any cost related. But, but as I'm saying, the great news is you don't need it for the most part. A couple of the insurers today have addressed that it is going to be an exclusion, but you can buy the pandemic plan and therefore will get coverage for it. Others are saying, you know what, it's in our plan design. We took it off when the level advisory was lifted earlier on in October. We are not putting it back on now where you require a rider. It's embedded in our full plan as if it were any other unexpected emergency. That sounds sounds pretty nice of them. It, It is. And you know what it says, Libby? It says... They don't see the risk like they once saw. Because believe me, insurers more than anybody do everything based on risk. So you know what they're saying to me? They're saying, we don't see you ending up in an emergency room in an ICU unit on a ventilator if you have been, I'm sorry if I didn't state this, fully vaccinated. Okay, you must be fully vaccinated in order to be able to receive full emergency uh, funds towards any issue. And and what's fully vaccinated, two or three? Only two. Nobody has addressed the word booster ever. Who's kidding who, though? The majority of us will try, especially with it opening up to 18. Not that that matters to me. Uh, Open it up for everybody on Monday. So that's the good news. Okay, so here's a scenario. And I think there's an insurance product for it. If Okay, you have to take a test before you come home. If you test positive, uh, you have to self-isolate before coming back home. So what do you do then? Well, there was a story this week, I don't know if you read it, of a Windsor couple 
who uh, were at a resort in Jamaica and they got a positive test. And when they kind of pushed them as to, can I get another one? Because I don't see how I'm positive. I'm asymptomatic. I don't have any symptoms. My husband was negative. It's uh, And they suggested that you have to stay another five days at this cost in their hotel in a quarantine wing, like nightmarish. So what the stories behind that, we'll never know. But you ask a very valid question. If you test positive and cannot fly home, there are products out there now that will cover up to $200 a day to a maximum of 14 days or $2,800 per person towards the cost of hotel meals and expenses if, in fact, you do end up in a situation where you cannot return home. Okay, and how much would that insurance cost? Not a lot at all. Quite frankly, uh, families galore are calling me now with respect to husband, wife, and two and three kids. And, you know, it's coming in at under $200. And it includes the $5 million for medical coverage, which is redundant from some who have group benefits, credit card, or whatever. But it gives them the peace of mind that they have this in place in addition to that quarantine benefit that I referred to. So what is your sense? Uh, are people, uh, first of all, did do you think there are a lot of people out there who bought, uh, you know, airline tickets that were non-refundable in that, or were people more careful? I think the majority of airlines came online and giving you 48 hours to cancel and get a full refund. I sure hope so. But this is a good piece of advice to give all who are planning future trips. Put the onus on the end user at the other end to say, if I can't get to that country or I can't leave my country, you have got to refund me my money. Don't give me a credit and don't give me a voucher. Because we all agree trip cancellation insurance through the insurers now, it's a known cause. It will not cover that as a reason for cancellation. So you have to look to the tour guide, the hotel the excursion company, the Airbnb, the house you rented to say to you, if you can't get here, we totally understand. We'll give you back your monies. That's good advice to give people. Right. And is your sense that most people, say people who are going south uh, for Christmas break, are they canceling or they're going to say, what the heck? I've paid for it. They probably at this point maybe cannot get all their money back. Um, What's your sense? Are people... Very few cancellations. Prior to the travel advisory being announced yesterday, I wasn't hearing any major issues about fear of going to the U.S. and southern destinations or sun destinations. When the travel advisory came, their only fear was, do I have coverage for COVID while I'm away? And again, I have to address that as an individual basis. I can't answer for credit cards. I can't answer for group benefit plans. You have to check with your providers to ensure you are. But the bottom line is, very few cancellations at all. What I can't tell you is, are people hesitating to book trips to Europe next spring, next summer? That I'm not seeing yet, and I have a funny feeling those things are on hold for the moment. Well, yeah, if they're traveling for the holidays, presumably that's already booked. It is, and there's very little chance of a refund short of your airfare. But if you rented a condo, or I shouldn't say a condo, but if you went to a resort all-inclusive, you're not getting your monies back if you don't show up unless you were so good to get that as part of the contract when you paid your monies towards it. Yeah, it's uh, it's a tough situation. I'm uh, and and uh, as far as you know, with this travel advisory in place, is is there any consequence for people who travel who take their holiday? None whatsoever, other than they can slap your wrist and say, I told you so, if you write them and go, you know, I can't get home from here, and how are you going to help me? So they set the table to say, we told you so. They've also set the table to say there could be future restrictions and put in place, even as of tomorrow, they could throw the one where you'll need the negative PCR test upon arrival to the airports, which supposedly is in place, but appears to be random at this moment. But it did exclude anyone returning from the USA. So they could, in fact, choose to want to add that to the list tomorrow, along with other restrictions. I sure hope not, but you never know. It's it's there if they want to do it. Well, it's and the airport, don't even go. I mean, the airport is crowded now. It, it had seemed a little better for a while, but wow, what no, I've seen, not a place that I want to be. I have been telling people to pack your patience because I suspect leaving what time you have to get there for an early flight, I can only imagine. And then don't tell anybody to pick you up at the airport after your plane lands because you could be looking at three to five hours and God knows if that's even the right answer with what you may have to go through and also self-isolate until you get back test results, which is scary for people who come home Sunday night and want to go to work on Monday. 
Yep. Uh, let's take a couple of calls. We've got Wayne in Toronto. Hi, Wayne. Hi, Louise. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Go ahead. I was just wondering, uh, since there's uh, a new travel advisory on, uh, should we be sending hundreds of Canadians to the Olympics in China? <laughs> That's a very good question. And nobody seems to be talking about it. Uh, you're right. Nobody seems to be talking about it. And uh, I, I don't think either I or Marty are in a position to answer that question. It's a fantastic it doesn't question, make any sense. which I don't have an answer for. But you know what? Doesn't it make sense in lieu of the fact that there's a travel advisory? So you make a very good point. Okay, Wayne, thanks for uh, bringing that to our attention. Let's go to Karen and Fergus. Hi, Karen. Hi, how are you today? Fine. Go ahead, Karen. Excellent. Um, yes, this is perfect timing. I have a flight booked and ready to go January 1st to the 29th to Veradero Beach. And I, I have um, purchased insurance. Now, I'm just looking at it. And with regard to the COVID exclusion or non-exclusion, it says as of March 5th, 2020, Manual Life has determined that COVID-19 is now considered a known event and trip cancellation and interruption claims for this known event will no longer be considered payable for policies issued on or after March 5th, 2020. You so hit it, it on the like- nail. That's exactly what is on every company's trip cancellation policies that were sold after that date. So in essence, you can't cancel the trip because of a COVID related reason. Oh, okay. No, no. I was just, what I, my concern is, um, I've I've purchased insurance. So I'm told it's, it's up to 10 million, including all hospitalization down there, blah, 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 emergency flight home, et cetera, et cetera. Cancellation up to 24 hours beforehand. Okay. uh, We're, we're, we're running out of time, Karen. So, Listen, I'm going to let you go and let Marty answer the question, okay? Okay, all right. Great. Okay. Okay. Okay, so it appears she bought an all-inclusive package that included trip cancellation and medical. Be wary. Here's the problem. They've addressed the trip cancellation won't be covered as it's a known cause. What she has to do now is contact Manulite to confirm, is the medical part going to still include COVID, or do I have to buy their pandemic plan, which is a separate policy in lieu of yesterday's travel advisory? Really important that they check this out. Okay. That is very good advice. Uh, Martin Firestone from Travel Secure, as always, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. What a headache. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about those boosters. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people are eligible, but what is the capacity? I'll be talking to Justin Bates from the Ontario Pharmacists Association when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The science table says the most important thing at this point is to get third doses into as many arms as possible. And the number they were aiming for is between 250,000 to 350,000 a day. It seems ginormous. Uh, the province has expanded eligibility to everyone over 18 as of Monday, but do we have the capacity to deliver? So let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Hi, Justin. Good afternoon. Great to be with you again. Uh, thank you. Great uh, talking to you. So, uh, you know, um, I got mine a couple of weeks ago, I have to say. And even at that point, it was hard to get in to get that shot. So what's the situation in pharmacies now? I mean, I, I, I think they've got supply, but I guess the issue is uh, people to do the injection. Am I right? Well, I think across the healthcare system, this is placing a huge toll, or taking a huge toll and burden uh, in terms of being able to turn that switch back on, ramp back up, almost like we're at the beginning of the vaccine rollout back in March of this year, uh, and, and bring in all the health human resources that we need during the holiday season. So you exasperate all of this, uh, because I think people were looking forward to after a year and a half of this uh, and doing extended hours and working through weekends, having that break. So, you know, at the same time, 
we're very much um, proud of the work that we've done and want to step up and we'll get the job done. But it is a challenge. There are capacity challenges. There are supply uh, challenges, not so much in the total supply that's available. It's how we get it out to the pharmacies that uh, are having some initial bumps along the way. But I'm pretty confident that over the next week to two weeks, we'll sort through that. We'll see that initial spike in demand, which is anticipated now that we have a broader cohort of people that are eligible. And then once we work through that, it will normalize. Right. But as I was saying, uh, what I found even two weeks ago when eligibility was quite limited uh, was that it was it was hard to get in. Uh, their pharmacies were so busy that they wouldn't talk to you. They'd say you have to go online. Things were not necessarily updated online. Uh, You know, some would say we're doing walk-ins, but in fact, they weren't doing walk-ins, all of that kind of stuff. Um, Have you had any uh, feedback on that? Yes. And I think with the, you know, we're certainly supportive and we welcome the expansion to 18 plus, but it does present the challenge of how do we manage all of this all at the same time? Uh, in a very short period of time, and we know we have to do everything we can in order to combat this uh, Omicron and and try to prevent more restrictions and closures and and hospitalization. So, you know, I think we're we're certainly ready to step up. But you're you're absolutely correct in your observations in that uh, we have to be patient because it's going to take uh, some time to get all the supply into the pharmacies to have the re, you know capacity to do this, and it's not going to happen overnight. And the idea of a walk-in is very challenging because we're very accessible. We're on demand in a lot of ways. This is a great uh, service. But we also need to manage the uh, chaos. We can't just have people showing up uh, and then, you know, then we're into the challenges of the safety protocols and maintaining distancing. So the appointment model is still the preferred model. And every pharmacy will have a booking system who's participating in the, the program and I still encourage people to go through that mechanism. Some will offer walk-ins, and, and there will be a hybrid model as appropriate and where appropriate. But the vast majority are going to manage this through the appointment model. And if we do that, we can match the supply to the known demand in the days and weeks ahead. And we can manage things in an orderly fashion uh, uh, and get the shots and arms that we're going to need to. Is part of the reason... Uh all the other things that the pharmacies are doing. So uh, I, I, couple even before that, I, I was in a pharmacy to get a rapid test before going to the United States. And those tests were literally booked every 15 minutes. And frankly, uh, it took a bit of doing to, to, to get that test as well. So is, is part of the issue that the pharmacies are doing so much and, and most of them, they, they have like one room right, where they see patients and, and not more than that? Well, I think it can be said of all parts of the health system. You know, you, you see the messaging out for primary care physicians to see uh, focus on the vaccination effort over the next two to three weeks and not see people that are uh, not urgent um, and, you know, cancellations of elective surgeries and things like that. We've seen that throughout the, the pandemic. Pharmacies, on the other hand, have remained open and have continued operations, doing dispensing services, counseling patients on uh, clinical services in addition to testing and vaccination. So, you know, I think we've maintained operations uh, and, and, you know, the safety of our patients and uh, the care of our patients. And that's, you know, that shouldn't be um, understated. At the same time, absolutely, when you see a surge like this, uh, which is temporary, it's not, this isn't going to last forever. Um, we do our best to ramp up and uh, it's going to take some time to get through and accommodate everyone because we do do everything else and we make sure that we maintain that uh, patient care uh, model so that nothing falls through the cracks. Um, but that means you might take a little bit longer uh, and you have to wait to get your shot. Um, and you know, that's not necessarily different than the other parts of the system, but uh, everyone's doing their best. They're all working uh, tirelessly uh, extending their hours to uh, meet that demand. And, and over time, we will. Uh, yeah, what I'm asking, and, and, you know, it sort of makes sense, there's now a travel advisory, so probably there will be maybe fewer people getting a rapid antigen test um, to travel. Quite possibly. Yeah, quite possibly. Uh, but again, what I'm saying is, is, is the kind of the mix of what the pharmacists do, is that going to change to try to get these boosters done? Well, that's partly what we have been doing. Um, what we're experiencing is a shortage of 
uh, human resources as well. And that, that's true in other parts of the system. Uh, so that, that confounds the situation. Um, but we are bringing in as many pharmacy assistants, technicians who are certified to inject, um, bringing in as many resources, relief pharmacists, uh, pharmacy interns and students who are all authorized to do this so that we can meet that demand. And, and different stores will have different capacity limits and different resource uh, constraints. But Overall, uh, we've been preparing for this and ramping up from supply to human resources to be able to participate. And, and we're not alone. I mean, in the sense that we're one channel of many that needs to be all uh, operational at an optimal level in order to get as many shots in arms. And then, like we did see in the first and second waves, as we went through the first series of doses, uh, we're now we have almost 90 percent of the population. You know, it did normalize. It took some time. We got through that initial surge and then uh, it normalized from there and now we're right back at that uh, surge capacity because of the uh, third dose and and the severity of the uh, outbreak. So uh, bottom line, what's your advice to people who are going to be uh, fairly frantically looking for their boosters? Well, my advice would be to continue to uh, go to the website of the pharmacy or um, go to the provincial booking system if you choose to go to a clinic or through primary care. Uh, book an appointment, um, and uh, or or that website of the pharmacy may advertise that they have walk-ins on a certain day, at a certain time frame, uh, in which case then uh, you can proceed. So the best route is online first. Uh, our phone lines are flooded, um, and we don't want people en masse coming in uh, and creating chaos at stores. So I think the best thing is to do that uh, through the online booking systems. That's the most uh, methodical approach that will get to everybody as quickly as possible. Um, anything else that you would like to leave us with? Well, I think it's important to emphasize just how uh, much work has been underway through um, our system, and and I, you know, I'm tremendously uh, always admire the work that uh, healthcare professionals have done throughout this pandemic and accommodating all of the policy changes and almost on the fly in real time uh, trying to adjust, uh, and that you know it's difficult when you have supply chain. Uh, logistics uh, contingencies and, and codependencies. But I would say that people need to be uh, kind and, and, and patient and understand that the pharmacist, the physician, the nurse, they're all doing everything they can and they're they're tired. They, they're trying to deal with all of these things uh, in the best uh, way possible. So uh, hopefully people will be understanding and will appreciate uh, the work that's being done, even if it takes a bit more time than uh, perhaps they would like. Okay, Justin Bates, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Bye-bye. Bye. That's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and I want to hear from you. Um, how are you doing getting your booster shot? Do you have it? Uh, it how are you doing getting it? Uh, what do you think of all of these uh, new dire predictions of the travel restrictions? Are you changing your plans for the holiday? Are you changing your trip? Um, boy, uh, it's not a great time for this kind of a headache, but you know, we're all going to get through it. We're all going to cope, hopefully as well as possible. So just uh, call me and we'll talk about whatever is on your mind on the original Free For All Friday. That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, As you heard in Bob's news, we have some shocking new modeling numbers predicting what we're likely to experience because of the Omicron variant. And the number of cases is up to 2,421 here in Ontario. That's the highest in eight months. And the word, according to this modeling, is that it could exceed 10,000 uh very soon before christmas if nothing is done the science table says that there is no real evidence that uh this variant is less severe than delta uh and they say even if it is they are expecting icu capacity and hospitalization to reach unstable levels um 
unstable levels in January. So uh, what does all of that mean? They're saying we need a so-called circuit breaker, and they're defining that as reducing contacts by 50%. So um, I'd like some clarity on that. Does it mean each one of us? What about uh, if you already have reduced contacts? Or are there certain things that are risky uh, that we should stop doing? Uh, We've seen the capacity in sports arenas reduced to 50%, but what about restaurants, places like that. I'm going to give the numbers out because uh, I'm sure you have a lot of questions. I know that I certainly do. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, I would like to welcome Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network, and Dr. Barry Pakes, the medical officer of health for York Region. Hello, and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, let us begin with Dr. Pakes. So what is your reaction to this modeling just coming out now? So it is very concerning, uh, as you've highlighted. Uh, it's something that we've seen coming for uh, some time. And by some time in Omicron terms, I mean a few days. Um, and, and that is why the province has you know, been enthusiastic about uh, the booster doses, both last week and this week, making announcements. Uh, and we're, just, we're very concerned, along with everyone else, and have certainly been advising uh, people to reconsider their holiday plans, uh, thinking about decreasing the number of people they're gathering with, and, of course, for unvaccinated people to get their vaccine and people who need that booster to get their booster. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, what's your reaction? I think uh, based on the uh, outcomes in other countries, those case numbers are what I think most people understand that would have been the outcome here in Ontario. And certainly the suggestion that some kind of circuit breaker is required makes sense. It's just a question of how willing is the public now after so many months of the pandemic to adhere to those recommendations. So it's going to be a, you know, a balance, and we'll see what the CMOH and the Premier says about what actually, how they can actually operationalize the circuit breaker idea. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, we've had a lot of uh, very dire modeling over the whole course of this uh, thing, and generally speaking, we do not hit the worst-case scenario, Dr. Pakes. And that's true, and that's terrific. <laughs> you know, I, I think... Um, what we have seen throughout the pandemic is that the science table modeling, and, and we do modeling, each health unit does similar modeling, and we've seen the same thing. Um, we've been successful in, in preventing the do- most dire consequences at each stage of the pandemic, and that is thanks to the modeling and thanks to our efforts, whether they be with vaccination or public health measures. So, you know, I, I think, you know, for those who... Um, you know, do say, oh, you know, we've, we've said this before, we've, we've predicted Armageddon before. Um, we have, and, and frankly, you know, things have got pretty difficult in hospitals, but not as difficult as predicted, and that's specifically because of the measures we took. So I, I think that's heartening, and, and the science table is, has really been quite accurate in its recommendations and its prediction of what would happen if we did take action. So I, I actually am quite confident in what I've seen, unfortunately, because I'd like to say that it's an exaggeration, but I don't feel it is. Okay, well, no, I wasn't suggesting it was an exaggeration. I'm just uh, suggesting that we've never hit the absolute worst uh, before, and uh, hopefully we won't again. Uh, uh, Dr. Vaisman, I want to get into this business about uh, is it less severe or is it not less severe? We had some initial indications that it was it was you know, obviously much more transmissible but less severe and and now uh Dr. Brown was saying no no real evidence of that because uh, our evidence is from a very different population in South Africa and he cited Denmark so uh though I guess uh mortality is down but hospitalizations maybe not yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting discussion based on kind of how you look at the data right now and how comparable Ontario is going to be to those areas. So probably more comparable to the UK and Denmark than it is to South Africa. And so it's true that the data right now is a little bit unclear. The thing to remember is that there's going to be some lags in the outcomes. So when you think about somebody who gets COVID, it's going to be several days before that person gets critically unwell, and then several days after that before they become going to the intensive care unit. 
And then perhaps several days later when they require ICU hospitalization. So we're looking at sometimes a 20 to 30-day delay between somebody picking up COVID and having a severe bad outcome like death. So these indicators, there's going to be a lag. So that's why it's a little bit early to fully understand how bad COVID, how bad the Omicron might potentially be. Well, and I'm curious about that as well, because the interval uh, for uh, the transmissibility is different. So are are we sure that the uh, that the course of the disease runs the same amount of time like uh, what Dr. Vaisman just described or is there a chance that it's quicker or slower or who knows Dr. So Pace There is a chance certainly and and you know the challenge here as we've said a couple of times is we we've only recognized this variant within the past couple of weeks um and it is going that much faster so whereas, whereas in previous uh, waves, we had the advantage in Ontario of watching what's going on in other places, you know, for weeks and sometimes even a few months. And then we can prepare. We've got the evidence to make the most appropriate decision that balances preventing cases, hospitalizations and death and whether it's economic activity, people's mental health. We just don't have the luxury of that time right now. So we are, you know, modeling what we've got sort of making decisions based on what we can see. And what we do see is that it may be less severe, but we're not certain about it. And, and the, the issue is we really need to act now as cases are increasing because we know that hospitalizations and ICUs follow very predictably. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls. We've got Sheila in Alliston. Hello, Sheila. Hello. Hi. Um, I just have a question. Um, I'm wondering, do we know what the death rate is from the Omicron variant yet? Who wants to take that? Dr. Baseman? Sorry to clarify, the question is how well we're protected by the vaccination? No, no, is what is the death rate? Oh, Do we know what the death rate is? Yeah, the Omicron uh, variant. Yeah, as I was saying, it, that, that, uh, death would be one of the later outcomes that people will experience as a result of COVID. It's a little bit early to tell. I can't provide a precise number, but the hospitalization and death in the province that was most affected in South Africa, they did okay. not experience as high a death rate from Delta as they did from Omicron currently. So that is about a 25 or 40% reduction compared to the previous wave. So it's still a very rough estimation. And again, the question is about which population, how, how the population in Ontario compares to that province in South Africa. So, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch all of what you said. Oh, do we know... Do we know if there are any deaths yet from the Omicron? Yes, there are. There there have been a few here. And uh, Dr. Vaisman was saying that in South Africa, there were fewer deaths yes. from it. But it's a very different population. It's younger, and they've had different kinds of exposure. So right. uh, it's it's a very different population. He also was looking at Denmark, which probably would be closer to us, I would think. Okay. Um, so uh, it looks like uh, it's not necessarily less hospitalization, but uh, less death from what they know now. Uh, Sheila, does that sort of answer yeah. your question? Yes, that's very good. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, Let's take a call from Joan in North York. Hi, Joan. Hi, Libby. Yes, um, I just heard you you mention or on the show that it would be a good idea to cut our our numbers in half for seasonal get-togethers here, Christmas dinners, etc. But the problem is, if we cut it in half, and then the few that do come, and someone has COVID, uh, what good does that do? So I've heard some of the experts on TV saying what we really need are rapid tests to test the people before they come. Well, apparently and we're that getting them. Just reduce the spread. Apparently we're the- way behind on on that. In, in Ontario and in Canada in general, as far as I hear. Joan, uh, we've just heard they have started to distribute rapid tests for free in all kinds of locations, shopping malls. Uh, there's a list. Uh, there's an Ontario government list. There go- it's going to be in the LCBO, so uh, that should be available. And uh, let's ask Dr. Vaisman, uh, how far can that go to protecting us? as opposed to cutting contacts, just asking people to take the tests before? Yeah, certainly it can help. It's just one of several, you know, interventions. The, the fact that people are gathering less is by far the more important intervention than doing the rapid test. One thing just important to note about the youth, which is going to be very helpful with gatherings, is that 
a negative test when you do the, the rapid test is only as good as the moment that you do it or around the time that you do it. So if you intend to have a gathering, and again, it's recommended that we cut down the gathering to the most we can, it makes no sense to perform that test as, so, as close as possible to the time that you intend to gather with your family members. It makes sense to do it as close as possible. Yeah. So that's... Right. And we could ask our guests to do it before they get in their car to come. Exactly. That's uh, that's the way that it's being recommended. Yes. Yeah. I even heard one person, uh, um, a doctor in the United States, who said that her daughter's birthday party was during the holiday season and that she had rapid, she was getting rapid tests to admit at the door before she allowed them in. I jump in there. It's Dr. Pecos here. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, I think the rapid tests are going to be helpful, but but they are by no means, you know, the answer to this problem or question of, of how to gather. There are, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages to the rapid test. Um, the most significant of which is that because it's done by yourself, and I've done these on, on my own kids and other people, there's a lot of variability on how they're done, in addition to the fact that they're a little bit less accurate. Um, but but one of the key pieces also um, is that when you do a rapid test and it's positive, let's say, we, people are advised to go get a regular PCR test, but many don't. And in fact, as these become more common in the population, many will not. And what that does is, unfortunately, um, it, it obscures our window on what's going on, because then we actually don't know how many cases are in the population and don't really have a way of of driving our our public health interventions or even for testing for omicron so the the tests are important i would I not yeah i would not recommend and because as a public health practitioner i've i've seen uh, you know enough outbreaks um where that kind of thing has been done and an outbreak still occurs um or you know y- you decide to have more people and test them as opposed to less people and not test them i would say the the best advice would be less people and still test them I've been uh, I'm I'm a senior senior and I've been doing everything right all this time so I don't want anything to go wrong because I'm having four people for Christmas dinner. Okay, well get yourself some of those rapid tests. Thank you. And I will. Uh, yeah, and you also I'm sure you know who you're having and if they're uh, big partiers. Joan, thanks for your call. Uh, so a couple of things that I I want to get into here. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Pecos, you were mentioning that if people test positive and then they just uh, go home and isolate, then then public health won't necessarily know, right? Yes, that's true. And, and you know, as if we do reach the number of cases predicted in today's science table uh, projections, you know, we're, we're not going to be recommending people come to get tested because we won't have the capacity. But certainly until that time comes, it really is critically important to have that formal test that connects you to public health that allows for the testing of Omicron that does it, you know, in a, in a, uh, having, having a healthcare provider actually do it. Um, it is less convenient. There's no doubt about it. And rapid tests have a, a very important role at this stage. They haven't really before, but, but they're not a solution to all of our problems. Uh, a couple more questions, uh, Dr. Vaseman. So how do they and when do they tease out whether it's the Omicron variant or not? And do the people who are actually have the disease, do they know what variant they have? So the way uh, testing works, generally speaking, is that when the PCR test is done, let's say in a hospital or in an outpatient lab or now even pharmacies, those samples are sent to a centralized lab and a certain uh, percentage of those will be sent to the public health lab where sequencing is done. Some hospitals also have the capacity to do it on their own to do the sequencing. And uh, when you get the test results, when you go online and access your test results, uh, for example, at our hospital, you can actually see once that te- once the sequencing is done, which variant you have. Although the, the wording is, is a little bit uh, scientific and maybe a little bit challenging for most people to understand, but I think it's safe to assume that you know, in a few weeks, it's just going to be all Omicron. Uh, you know, the you know, Omicron is essentially going to be predominant in the next few days, crossing 50% and then dominating completely very soon. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Pei, because you're talking about the PCR testing capacity. I was recently in New York City, and they had free PCR tests on many a street corner, and uh, we took advantage of that before we came home. 
And it was uh, the results. Uh, you got the results. They said it was 24 to 48 hours, but it, they came in 18 hours. And there were these little kind of tent huts on the street corner, each one manned by maybe one or two people. And that was it. Uh, but they weren't ones that I'm assuming the ones that we're going to get, the rapid ones, you know, that you, you see yourself what your result is. But uh, these were, they were sent somewhere. You know, it, it, there are different tools that are necessary at different stages. I can tell you, I was a, a camp doctor in the States over the summer and, you know, of course, dealing with a little bit of COVID there. And um, the fact that we have the lab system that we have in Ontario with, with what's called CT values, which are, are very valuable to see, you know, um, you know, how positive, in fact, it is, um, for lack of a better way of explaining it. Um, and, and having that done centrally is really valuable and has been wonderful. It was a nightmare, you know, in, in the States trying to do some testing and understand what their testing meant and, and the accuracy as well. However, you know, we are in a different strategy now, some, somewhere where the States has been for some time with much more widespread transmission, where, you know, more active testing and, and maybe less of a connection with public health is warranted so people can self-isolate. The key is, of course, they have to get the, the messaging across because public health won't be able to call them. They need to get in touch with whoever they've been in contact with. They need to self-isolate. And Canadians have been doing that. Ontarians have been doing that, which is terrific. And we just need to keep doing that. Okay, yeah. Um, I have some other questions. Uh, so you're talking about reducing contacts. Uh, what about certain activities like certain sports? Is that okay? Is it okay to uh, play hockey and, you know, with you, just a little neighborhood pickup game? Is it okay to play tennis? Uh, is that for, yeah, I can, I can answer that. And, and it, I can certainly uh, tell you that, that hockey tournaments, for example, you know, so, some of the venues that have been most challenging have been where there are large numbers of, of people, whether they're kids who are too young to be vaccinated until recently, uh, or even people who are fully vaccinated in, in sporting tournaments where there are a lot of people, we have certainly seen a lot of transmission. Now, can I, can I say then, therefore, because there's been all these hockey tournament cases that people shouldn't have pick up on the street? No, I, I don't think that's the case. Um, you know, I think, it, you know, outdoors certainly is safer, masks is safer, vaccinated is safer. Um, but certainly when it comes to some of the things where we're really seeing a lot of spread, whether it's in, you know, event venues, meeting venues, or in these in large sporting tournaments, those are the sorts of things that either need to reduce capacity really significantly or, you know, potentially at this point be canceled altogether, unfortunately. It, like what about uh, vaccinated people playing tennis in a bubble? Not a lot of them. You know, that, that sounds not unreasonable, <laughs> you know, and, and certainly lower risk than, than close together. You know, I think it's a challenge, as it has been really through the whole pandemic, for people to do sort of a detailed risk assessment, you know, in their mind. So if you've got, you know, two players who've had their booster and they're, they're far away from everybody in a large bubble, of course, there's very little likelihood of any transmission happening. But, it's, it, you know, as throughout the pandemic, it's not about that event itself when they're actually playing tennis. It's all the things that can you know, be involved there, whether it be carpooling to the uh, venue or in the change rooms or, you know, having a, having a coffee afterwards. You know, there's, there's all those elements. So I think that the general advice to decrease the amount of interaction you have and certainly thinking about larger is worse than small or vaccinated is, is better than unvaccinated, you know, just things people need to keep in mind. Okay. And uh, Dr. Vaisman, uh, do you anticipate, uh, you know, now more capacity restrictions for restaurants? I mean, they're back at full capacity. It's holiday time. Uh, I've been in crowded restaurants or almost crowded. Yeah, with with Omicron, it's such a enormously challenging problem. The reproductive number is extremely high. The spread has been off the charts. So I think the government whether it's going to be effective or not, is going to have to make these recommendations because there's very little we can do otherwise to try to reduce the spread. In, in all the other countries that have been affected by Omicron, it's just been so rapid. So some of the low-hanging fruit they already dealt with, such as uh, arenas with more than 1,000 people in them. That was but just the ridiculous. Next- I mean, having it in the first place like that, it's just ridiculous. Sorry, yeah, so my I think opinion. Some of those, uh, 
I think some of those other things are probably going to be the next low-hanging fruit uh, where there is certainly a lot more crowding. The big question is, is it going to make a big impact? And, you know, a lot of the transmission actually will probably still occur among people gathering in homes uh, in places where it's going to be harder for people to adhere to those recommendations, harder for the government to enforce them. And as usual, that'll be the big challenge. Well, you know, there was one question in the briefing uh, that I don't think Dr. Brown was very happy to take. And it was somebody who said, like, shouldn't shouldn't we just assume that basically almost everybody is going to get this no matter what? (laughs) (laughs) That that, that question, that's not my question. It was somebody else's question. Uh, I can start. I think we'll both both of us will have, you know, different takes on that. I think there were two questions that were tough. One was was uh, a quite insulting one, and, and Dr. Brown pointed that out around, um, you know, have hospitals not done enough to prepare for this? And I think they've done everything possible, and what we're facing is something that is unprecedented, and, you know, the best preparation is still going to mean that we're not going to be where we need to be. But I think that the, the point around everyone getting it is something, actually, I believe the German Chancellor made um, not long ago, is, uh, you know, it, that may very well be true, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that it is going to be, but even if it is, um, it's also a matter of everybody not getting it at the same time, right? And that's, that's the big challenge. If we have huge number, you know, no restrictions whatsoever, everybody, everybody just says, you know, throws up their hands, I'm going to get it, and that's just gonna, the way it's going to be, we're going to have a, a huge number of hospitalizations and ICU admissions and potentially deaths all at the same time. So, you know, if, if our measures and the vaccination campaign and all of that just succeed in drawing it out over a longer period of time, that's certainly going to frustrate people and, and going to be very challenging. But it, more people are going to survive as a result. And, and I think that's really what we're aiming for. Mm-hmm. So just to, you know, people who are, are wondering now, uh, reducing contacts, is there a number that either of you have in mind, say, for Christmas dinner? That's coming up soon. Yeah, it's a good question. There's no specific number, but I think the approach from every person should really be, unfortunately, a very kind of harsh one to say, look carefully at what you're doing and say to yourself, how can I reduce this to the most I can? And I think they need people who are in more vulnerable positions need to think about that even harder. So, for example, if you're not triply vaccinated, if you have somebody in the family who's immunocompromised, if you have somebody who's elderly, you have children who have not been vaccinated yet, for example, or if you're living in a very uh, in a home that's not well ventilated, for example, those are all things that somebody might consider when deciding on how many people to bring in. But this year, unfortunately, won't be the one where you have extended. It wouldn't be recommended that you would have a large extended family coming to your home because you're simply increasing the risk of transmission. And as we spoke about earlier, this rapid test, unfortunately, not perfect, and you can still get transmission even if a large number of people test negative early. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, we all saw uh, that case with Masai Ujiri, who had a booster, and he still got it, asymptomatic, but nonetheless, that was, I think, pretty jarring for most people. And that is true. People still can get it. I think, you know, that that shouldn't dissuade people from getting back to and getting the booster. There's, you know, reasonably good data uh, from Israel, and, and there's going to be good data hopefully coming out from the U.K., that while you have these instances of people getting it, even being triple vaccinated, it's a, a, you know, for the most part, a fraction of a percent, at least with Delta, with Omicron, it's going to be a little bit more. But, you know, I think it's it's very reassuring that he was largely asymptomatic uh, or was entirely asymptomatic. So that that's the goal here at this stage in the pandemic. Um, and just to address the number, you know, there is no magic number. There's no, you know, evidence we have that seven people is better than eight people or, you know, uh, the, the nitty gritty there is, is less important than the principle, but you know we have had this um, uh, a random, not random number, but a nice round number of ten, uh, and we're at twenty five right now in terms of in people's homes. And I think it'd be very reasonable to say, you know what, let's let's get down to ten people and, or two groups of ten people in different locations and connected with with some kind of uh, by some virtual means. You know, I think we're all familiar enough with it after two years of this that that's a really good alternative. So I would suggest 10 instead of our 25 limit, but really as small as you can go and, and connect in other ways. Uh, th- this is a bit of a tangential question. We saw huge numbers in the UK. Do either of you think that it had anything to do with the fact that most of most of them uh, were vaccinated with AstraZeneca? 
I think it's unlikely, maybe a small proportion of it is due to that, but if you look at the UK in terms of the restrictions since July, they've had far less restrictions in terms of capacities and masking and various other things compared to Ontario. So that that may be one explanation, although with Omicron, it may make no difference and it'll just kind of rip through the population here just as well as there, even though we've had a bit more on the restriction side since that time. Okay, we are uh, running out of time. So, uh, Dr. Pecos, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, you know, I, I think that the comment just now, the ripping through the population does, um, you know, both, you know, make us a little bit fearful and anxious as well as frustrated. And I think it, it very well may be accurate, but there still is some, um, you know, hope now. And there are things we can do. The, the decreasing the numbers and getting those booster shots, and especially among the kids, I think those are things we really can do right now. And we can remain optimistic. You know, fortunately, in Ontario, we've had the benefit of the vaccines, the benefit of people largely adhering to the guidelines. And and I'm really looking forward to us doing well again in this phase, thanks to everybody's cooperation. Uh, And hopefully, no, not as, as dire as we predict, although, you know, we prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Always a good solution. Dr. Vaisman, what would you like to leave us with? Yeah, I think those are all very important points. And Dr. Pecos earlier meant the point about the overwhelming of the hospital system. But one other thing to keep in mind is that because this variant is more transmissible, many of our frontline staff, whether it's hospitals, police, fire, power plant, all those things, even though a high number of those people are vaccinated, simply because the transmissibility is so high, they may have asymptomatic or mild disease, which will lead to exclusion from work. So that that is another reason why we want to slow this thing down, is that we don't have this one-up situation where our essential workers have to be put off from work, even with mild disease, uh, because of just so many at the same time are getting infected. So that's another motivating factor for everyone to do their part to try to slow it down in the next few weeks. Okay, good advice. Uh, uh, And thanks very much. Uh, Really, uh, that's very useful to keep in mind all of that. And we really appreciate your time, Dr. Barry Pecos and Dr. Alon Vaisman. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about traveling. Yesterday, the prime minister, the government said this is not the time to, to travel. So what's going to happen with people, either if they cancel or if they don't cancel? We'll have Marty Firestone when we come back. And by the way, later in the show, we'll be talking to Justin Bates from the Ontario Pharmacists Association. They're saying, get your boosters. How easy is it to get your booster? We're going to have all that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.